0: Well, thank you, and we're glad you were with us this morning. Um, we want to we're going to begin a new series today in Colossians, and so I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter one. and uh, if if you don't mistake it for the book of collisions that's that happens later. Um, but Colossians chapter one. and we'll be looking at the first fourteen verses this morning. Um, now, It's said that John Wesley, when he was doing interviews uh, for ordination, that he would look at these would-be preachers and ask them a question, or at least the people that were with him and evaluating these ordinands, they, they would ask them this question, have they fruit? It's not exactly grammatically correct, but it means something. Could they show anything for their service? Was there at least one person who had found faith because of the word that they proclaimed? Had a single person whose spiritual practice has ever been energized by what they taught? Had a hungry person found bread? Had had a homeless person found shelter? Was there any sign of their ministry was waking the world to the reality of God's existence? Have they fruit? It's not a bad question. Amen. And you know, in, in other words, we could say it this way: What's the evidence? Lenny would say, "Have you been washed?" What can we point to that demonstrates that the community in which we live is better because we have encountered Christ? Is it healthier? Is it more faithful because of the presence of our church and its people? Are ministries making a difference to our neighbors? Is the Spirit through us actually changing lives? Is it deepening faith? Is it seeing hope given to this town? Or are we just taking up space? Question I pondered often and, and was given to me often through some schooling was if the church that we're serving stopped to stopped existing where it's at, or just stopped and disappeared. If it closes doors, would the community notice? These are all good questions for us this morning. As we begin this journey through the letter of Colossians, I, I truly believe we're going to find some good challenge for us in the upcoming weeks. And a little context as we begin is that Paul as he wrote this letter to Colossae, had never been there. He'd never been in the church. As far as we know, he'd never been in the town. He had been spent three years teaching in Ephesus, though, which was a neighboring area. And um, during that time, a, a man named Epaphras became a disciple. He heard Paul, he sat under his teaching, and as a result became a Christian became a disciple of Christ. And as he became a disciple, well, he went back to his hometown of Colossae and started a church. And now Epaphras many years later has sought Paul out as he's in home house arrest in Rome, waiting to be before Caesar. And he sought him out and and, and shared some news of this church. And is asked, you know, would, Paul, would you write this letter and encourage the believers? Would you help us stabilize these Colossian believers in, in face of some false teaching that's been been starting to develop? So that's the background for this letter. It's to be read specifically to this church, but also to some of the areas uh, immediately around it, is, is, it's very similar in, in a lot of ways to Ephesians and to Philippians as well. And so as Paul begins, he writes, and we can't forget this is a letter. It's written in, in a very formal way that letters were written in that time frame. And he identifies his recipients. He says, here I am, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you don't know me, but but who I am is the reality of the very calling of God, not of man. And he says, so I'm writing to you, holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll dive into why this is important, but it's a bit of a loaded statement. And as is typical, he quickly Moves from that into a word of thanks and praise for what's been going on, not just in their church, but outside in the world as the gospel continues to, to move. He he praises this church for its faithfulness because the church has earned a reputation. He says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. He's heard good things whether it be from Epaphras or, or somebody else or all the above. And he uses three key virtues to describe their lives. As he's hearing about it, he, he says he uses faith, hope, and love. It's a common occurrence in Paul's writing. And he praises them for their faith and trust in Christ and for the love that they have for their, their fellow Christians. But unlike in First Corinthians where he puts the emphasis On love here he he states that both faith and love really flow out of hope they are both a result of hope hope has let the colossians see the purpose and the goal for the journey that they're on and because they see that goal because they understand it they live out their faith and exhibit love So hope is, in in some essence, the the gospel message. God is actively involved in redeeming the world, and Christ's resurrection was God's down payment on on what's going to come forward in in the future, that this coming resurrection that God is going to bring at the end of time, God, God has laid the footwork in the resurrection of Christ. And so God has enabled the Colossians to see this future toward which they're moving. And in hope, God now empowers them to actively live that future and not just passively wait for it to happen. For Paul, that that hope compels us to live. That That hope compels our faith uh, forward in loving acts. And, and we trust God and we work for the good of others because we see God's faithfulness and the good that God will continue bring, to bring about. And so Paul wants nothing less than the fruitfulness of the church to be evident. He wants to see the church live into the identity as holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. By stating that phrasing, Paul, who's writing to a group of mostly Gentiles, but there's a good, good also group of Jewish believers in this and that are trying to work out the differences and yet the similarities, and he's, he's bringing it this way to set, to, for them to understand that they are part of a set-apart status that God is distinguishing through his church. That they are a part of something bigger, one that was started in the Sinai Desert as the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land. And it's now being fully revealed that all are included in that promise. That we all get to enter in. So in order for them to continue that kind of living, he knows He understands that he needs to help them become more deeply grounded in the doctrine of Christ so that they'll be more empowered to live in a world that doesn't always agree. We don't do good works for work's sake. We don't do it for the approval of man. But we do it as a response of thanks. For what Christ has already done. Christ is at the beginning. Christ is at the middle. And he's throughout. And he will be at the end. And so we live out that hope. The point for Paul through all of this is that the gospel should bear fruit. As it interacts in our life, it's productive. It does something. In Paul's view, the gospel isn't just a report of something that's happened in the past. That Jesus died for our sins back then. But that this is a message that is active toward the future. A hope that empowers the people to live here and now. Not just wait for the future. Because once you grasp God's grace... Once you fully get it, you understand it, but it also, we need to understand that we seize it, we, we hold on to it, and it seizes and holds on to us as well. And as a result, we live differently. So because of this report that he's received, because he's heard these things going on, he says, I pray for you daily. Paul's... House arrest has changed his ministry. He's now a pastor by virtue of the letter and prayer. And so he, he says, Here's how I pray for you. This isn't a prayer in and of itself, but more of a report on his prayer. In, in verse 9, he, he explicitly identifies this ongoing fruitfulness of the gospel as the main motivation for his prayers for Colossians. He, he, he prays for them because he wants them to continue that process that they've already been a part of. He, he also outlines the, the process a little bit more in, in how to keep into that. And so first he prays for the Colossians that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they would understand. And really, ultimately, that we would understand that God wants, that, that there's something that comes through spiritual wisdom and insight that they would be empowered to, toward and living out that hope in a way that worthily reflects not themselves so that they can have a pat on the back, but that they would live in a way that reflects God's character. And so living this way starts this cycle that happens. That, that that we encounter Christ that he changes us and and we we which includes then good works that we live out that which then opens the door to more challenge that that we would understand and and be changed into greater knowledge which then lives moves itself into living it out even more worthily that we would live and to do the things that we do as it changes us and then we come to more understanding of, of knowledge and then we do even more and then it, it goes on and on and on Paul's telling the church we got to keep moving don't get lazy that that we have to keep you know keep going it's it's not that good works are a prerequisite but they're a result of our faith so so we because we often especially after the time of the enlightenment in our world, we think of this idea of knowledge. We think about absor- absorbing facts and concepts and regurgitating them back. But in scripture, knowledge often goes way beyond that. For in scripture, it's, it's more acquainted with intimacy and knowing of a person. So, so God wants the disciples. of Jesus to know him deeply, to have a depth of relationship, not just a theological reflection of what God might be like, but to say, I've encountered Christ. And that I I know him, and he knows me, and, and I continue to develop in this relationship because it's that kind of intimacy that then compels us to live in a way that is worthy of God. So in verse 10, Paul continues. He says, well, what does it mean to live in a way that's worthy of God? Well, you bear fruit in every good work. And so the fruit, the result of the Spirit-given insight and wisdom that we put into place and, and grow in intimacy of God is a life that pleases God. It's worthy of Him. A life of worth and a life that brings credit to the Lord. Because when Christians live sloppily, when we're hypocritical, when we live unrighteous lives, we bring reproach to God, not praise to God. When we live that way, we do not represent Him well. So Paul encourages bear fruit in every good work as a result of growing in the knowledge of God. But he also recognizes that we need God's strength to continue to do it. If we're going to keep it up, we have to have God's strength as only he can strengthen us. And that's a strength that would empower us. And, And Paul prays for endurance and patience. Paul knows that living a life worthy of God means living at odds with the world. Paul is encountering a people and he's reminding them, You're not the ones in power. He's talking to Gentiles, slaves, Jews, all these people that are subverbient. They have no political say in anything. As the church, be the church regardless. You're going to upset some people, and even in the midst of that, we endure. Even things that we may not like, we endure and we keep moving and we keep pointing hope and we hold on to the hope that we have because we know that God is in control, that he has prepared us. And so we go back again to the idea of hope where this all started. That what gets us through the hard times is the hope of what we know will be. So Paul finishes this prayer report with a brief um, reaffirmation of the hope found in the message of the gospel. He says, we seek God's knowledge to bear fruit that is worthy of the gospel because we have a reason to be thankful. We've been given a gift by God that can't be duplicated in this world. So we give thanks, it says verse 12 through 14, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now I read that sentence, and I've read that sentence a lot of times. And English doesn't always portray well the words that are on the page and from the context that, that it's written. But these words in 12 through 14 are a callback once again to the story of God and his people as they're about to enter into the promised land. If you look in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, It really ties this entire section together. As God brought the Israelites to the edge of the promised land, He had bought their freedom. He had gotten them out of Egypt and now spent 40 years of getting Egypt out of them so that they would be His set-apart people, His people called by His name, not their name. That as they would enter into this land that they would understand, and, and so he's giving Moses these instructions for the people, and, and he says, do these things and you will be blessed. And he, he labels the different ways that they're going to bless. The, the land will be blessed, their animals will be blessed, and they will have lots of children. If, as long as you hold on to these things, and, and they, they aren't just things that you do, but they're part of your identity. And in Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 10, it says that God will establish them as his, what? His holy people. His set-apart people. His distinctive people in a world. And it says, and all the peoples on earth will see that they were indeed called by the name of. Of the Lord. So as they're about to enter in, as they sit on the other side, they know what lays behind, before them, they're being sent into the promised Land as His representatives, because they've received an inheritance from God. And it's about, it's, it's everything that they had ever dreamed of. It's a, it's a land flowing of blessing, of milk and honey it's described. And they are no longer a people of slaves. They're a people set apart by God. They, they just needed to understand, they need to claim, they need to live into their identity that has been bestowed upon them. They didn't earn it. God gave it to them. They didn't earn that status. It was a gift. The way they lived was just to be a reflection of who they already were. But as we tend to do, we get confused. We eventually let their titles go to their heads. They lost the point, they took the land, God's blessing. And then they started to do everything that was like everybody else instead of living into the identity that God had given them. He kept saying, if you will be my people, I will be your God. I'll take care of all the rest. But they start getting in trouble. They, they lose their identity. And that's why he, he said even before they went in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he, he says, choose life. So that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land that He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Paul is ending this prayer, this prayer report, and he's bringing that story into play. He's helping the, the Jews remember their past. He's also helping the Gentiles understand you were a part of that blessing. And all the stories at play, but now because of God's redemption, because of Christ and what he did, because he was nailed to the cross, he took our sins, we have attained forgiveness, we've been given forgiveness. And because of the resurrection of Christ, there is hope. And now we are all part of that story. Paul says in Romans that we've been grafted in. And so as a result, all we have to do is respond in belief because we understand that the price For our freedom has already been paid. It's not something that we do. God has already taken care of it. And God says, it says in in this letter here that God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We are qualified Not by what we do. We are qualified, not by birthright. We are qualified, not by where we were born or by nation or political status or any of those things. We are qualified by His name, that His holiness. So now we can live in hope because our inheritance is there, it's secured. And what that means for us, as much as it did for the Colossians, is that there should be a radical change in our allegiance. As the Israelites were rescued from slavery to Egypt, we've been rescued from the slavery to the dominion of darkness. We are no longer bound in those chains. We serve a new kingdom now and forever it 's not it 's the now and the not yet. We live now in the reality and the hope that what is to come, and we do so because we know what is before us it can 't be taken away. we can 't miss this, and yet so often we do. Because it's no different for us than what it was for the Colossians. Our new identity is, is shown in how the, we live with the hope that we have. How, and, and the hope that we have is played out in how it exhibits our faith and we show love to one another. And this word for love is agape. It's, it's a love that isn't earned. It's, it's not one that, well, oh, I kind of like you. It's, it's to anybody and everybody. Whether you do me well or not, I'm going to love you. And this isn't done necessarily through these overwhelming acts. But more noticeably, as we walk worthily of the one who redeemed us. It's in how we live, even in the mundane activities of life. Men's meet and greet. Jack Myers, I heard him say more words than I've heard him say in three years. But overwhelmingly, the biggest testimony he had was of a gentleman who just simply lived his witness day in and day out, not with big words, not with big show, but just simple, this is who God has made me to be, that I can live in that freedom. I don't have to be like everybody else, and that distinctiveness drew Jack and gave a moment for that man to be able to share the hope that he has with Jack and that planted the seeds it's played in the little things the mundane the life that paul envisions for for those of us who would follow christ isn't that complex in many ways it's contrary to the culture that's obsessed with everything being the spectacular the show that when we are engaged within the most mundane activities in life, that we can make a difference, a powerful difference in the life of another person. That we would show our faith in the little things. When we don't even think people are watching, that the fruit, the hope would shine through. Anyone can do it when the cameras are on us. but it's through the quality of character because of God doing his work in us that we should be living truthfully to Christ even when we don't think people are watching taken hold of us. Christ has, has, has grabbed us and now we have a different allegiance. We don't live by the, the statutes and the things of this world, but we live into Christ who has taken hold of our lives that we might make a difference in the world that we live. That we would not make a difference and point to ourselves so we get pats on the back, but that we might make a difference and live into pointing to Christ and saying, you know what? It's not about me. It's about Christ who's done something for me. It's not through great achievement. It's in the way we conduct our relationships that we really can have an effect on others. The Christian life is, is one of bearing fruit. And it's really just simply living out that, as we said over and over, it's, a, it's a one hungry man telling another hungry man where to find bread. You know what, I can't explain all the different things, but I can explain the hope that I have. And it comes not from what car I drive or where I live or how much money I have in my bank account. The hope that I have comes because Christ loved me first. And as a result, I live out and I can't outlive that love because it's the hope that I have. And that we, as we have and we live out that hope, that we exhibit grace, mercy, and compassion, not of our own name, but that we, we'd represent and be a set apart people, a holy and distinctive people among the nations, that we'd call all people unto God. Have you got fruit? It's not a test. It's a life. Have you got fruit? It's about bearing the name of Christ in and out, all day long, on the job, at home, when people are watching and when people aren't. Have you got fruit? Are you pointing people to Christ as you represent him daily? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you. That I have been part of one that is, uh, of all humanity, that has been set free. I've been set free to live into the hope, love, grace, mercy, that is part of who you are. You've called me In Christ alone, to live out that faith in in the people and places that I go. God, help us to bear witness to you. As we sit and eat, as we have conversations, as we work in the garden, as we drive, As we walk on the streets, help us to bear your witness. And when people ask why, all we can say is, it's the hope that I have that transformed the way I live. Help us, Lord. And if there be someone here today that doesn't quite understand that because they haven't fully encountered you, God, or they haven't fully put their faith in you, may they do so today. If we've lost focus, may we put our faith back in you. Center us today, Lord. And as we go, may we live worthily of the gospel that has freed us and gives us hope. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Go and be blessed and be a blessing.